Flight Guys Turkey, coming to you weekly from Istanbul. Your smart guide to the state of Turkey. Welcome to Zeitgeist Turkey. As per usual, coming to you from Istanbul. Today, I'll be hosting this episode alone without my partner Can Selçuk'i, but I have a very important guest. He has been a key player in Turkish politics in the last decade and continues to do so in a new capacity. Former Turkish Prime Minister, former Foreign Minister and now the founder of Future Party, Gelecek Partisi Mr. Ahmet Davutoğlu. Prime Minister, welcome to Zeitgeist Turkey. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's an honor for me to have you. It is an honor for me as well to see you again and talk on the, the critical subjects of today. I would like to extend my special thanks to you for being open to such an invitation because as you know, podcasts are such a new medium for Turkish political landscape and especially if you are doing it for an independent and a rather smaller publication like ours, not for one of the mainstream channels where one could reach millions. That's why I feel obliged to salute your openness. Thank you once again. Thank you. Most welcome. As a journalist, I have had the privilege to get to know you for probably more than 15 years since you were the chief foreign policy advisor of Abdullah Gül. We are talking about the first years of the Justice and Development Party. And if you allow me, throughout the episode, from time to time, I'll remind our audience of some of the basic information about Turkey, since they might not follow the Turkish agenda like us. So coming back to those first years of the ruling Justice and Development Party, you were there. And honestly, to me, it feels like ages ago, uh, because of the changes Turkey has gone through, especially in the last years, and at the speed of light, really, it feels like a different country in the last years. Without further ado, I will jump in to the hardcore political situation in Turkey today. If you were to summarize the character of Turkey's regime today, Turkey's political system, in only five words, what would you say? Throughout of my life, I always defended a balance between security and freedom for the legitimacy of a politics. Today, unfortunately, I, I can say that security is more important than freedom in Turkish politics today. Security, control, limitation, restriction. These are some keywords in Turkish political reality today. Security, control, restrictions, poverty, injustice. Of course, I do not want to see such a political scene, but these are some of the characteristics of the existing situation. How much of this, how much of this that you described in five, five words has directly to do with President Erdogan, do you think? I'm asking this question because you were one of his top people uh, for a long time. You were his prime minister up until four years ago. So the question is, all this decadence, poverty, did it start only four years ago? Or you were spotting the signs already, but kept yourself silent until you lost your job? No, this is a process. I do not blame only personalities in this type of dynamic processes. Of course, personalities are important, but more important thing is the political system itself. Unfortunately, we try to do our best when we try to democratize Turkish political system. But there were many factors and influential circles which try to defend democratization processes in Turkey. And throughout years, slowly, step by step, these anti-democratic forces became more influential. And President Erdogan, unfortunately, who led the country to a democratic process in early 2000, now is cooperating, collaborating with these forces in Turkey, which is Turkish political system from a more autocratic perspective. Of course, as all political leaders, president uh, of a system is responsible for these uh, changes and for these processes, but I don't personalize things. I prefer to look more from a systemic perspective rather than just from the perspectives of successes or failures of one person. But as I said, there are systemic problems in Turkish politics. There are problems of political culture. But now President Erdogan is the person who is representing all these anti-democratic trends in Turkish politics. As I said before, I'll probably be asking some obvious questions for our foreign audience. 
you establish your new party, future party, you're advocating for returning to a democratic parliamentary system. What does that mean exactly? And how is that different, the parliamentary system that we had before the presidential system? Therefore, I prefer to say establishing a new parliamentary system rather than returning to parliamentary system, because I don't think that there was a full functioning parliamentary system in Turkish democracy in the last 60 years after the democratic era has started. Uh, before, the system was established on a constitution which was written after a military coup d'etat in 1980. Therefore, the system itself was based on a control system by certain forces in Turkish political system. The assumption of uh, 1982 constitution was that the president would be always from military, high-ranked military officers. Therefore, there was an imbalance between the responsibilities and power of president and prime minister. Prime minister was elected by the people before, but more power was given to presidential office. So this was not a full-fledged parliamentary system. So our party, Future Party, now is advocating to establish a real full-fledged parliamentary system where the presidential position will be more symbolic and the power and government would be based on the parliament. And this has been the basic character of Turkish former system, but it was not full-fledged parliamentary system. That's our objective is to establish a full-fledged parliamentary system. So when you were serving as a prime minister between the years 2014 and 2016, as one of the key figures in the previous parliamentary system. What problem did you really have in terms of executing the ideal ideal system in your mind, what you're describing right now? Just to give some examples, in fact, those examples are the law of transparency, anti-corruption law, political ethics law, which we promised to the people to pass through the parliament in 2015 and 16, were not accepted by the president. President openly declared that these laws could not be applicable to Turkish political context. And there was a dispute between prime minister's office and presidential office and between me and President Erdogan. So for me, politics is a field of where you are trying to realize your ideals, your objectives, and transparency, political ethics, anti-corruption law are the basic promises and the basic ideals which I have defended when I was prime minister. But it was impossible to deliver this because all the laws should be uh, in Turkish former system endorsed by the president. So if there's a clash between president and prime minister, president had an upper hand to decide ultimately. So it was impossible to deliver these promises because of this imbalance of political power between president and prime minister. And there are so many other cases where if you have same position with president, you could serve. But if you have different position, it was impossible to, either you will have a political crisis, or at the end of the day, as I did, you have to, you have to resign. Otherwise, uh, you cannot have an integrated political approach based on integrity and your ideals. But what was your personal take on the involvement of the four ministers, four of your colleagues. Because since that day, uh, the government and President Erdogan has been portraying the whole thing as a plot, as a conspiracy against the government by the Gülenists. Are you on the same page in terms of that characterization of what happened uh, in December of 2013? I, I think we have to separate those two things. Yes, I was Minister of Foreign Affairs in December 2013. And it was an act, a plot against the government, against the elected prime minister, against the elected government, because there were certain elements in bureaucracy. Their main objective was to diminish the power of the government or even to eliminate the government through certain processes. That I strongly believe. But this does not mean this case of four ministers should be hidden, covered by certain shields and protection. The real fight, that was my position, the real fight against these petrol plots and conspiracies could be only through transparency. 
rather than not going to the court, not going through judicial processes. So there were two opposite positions in these cases. One was claiming that there are corruption cases in Turkish politics. They want to a conspiracy against the elected government. The other opposition is claiming that all these accusations were part of a coup d'etat attempt, so we should forget everything. My position was clear. It was a conspiracy against the elected government, against the elected prime minister, and as a democratic leader, and also a democratic intellectual, an intellectual who defended democracy, my position was clear. I was with the elected prime minister, parliament, and government, which I am part of it. But as a politician defending transparency, I suggested and advised to these four ministers to go through a judicial process in order to show their innocence, rather just claiming that it was a plot, so there should not be any accountability. No. Today also, I strongly believe that we have to be shoulder to shoulder against any conspiracy, against the elected institutions, a presidential office or parliament or a democracy. But at the same time, we have to defend transparency and accountability in the democratic system. Why would you say that? Do you spot any dangers, any signs that there might be another coup attempt underway, uh, just as the government has been saying in the last months? Do you see such a threat looming? At this moment, I don't think. But living in experiencing in the last 15 years through several cases, I cannot say that there is no threat against democracy in Turkey. Like in 27th of April 2013, December, like 2016 against me. I mean, an illegal organization to get rid of a prime minister who won the election eight months ago or 15th of July cases. So threat against democracy does not mean only a coup attempt. Autocracy is a threat against democracy. Trying to prevent other political parties is a threat to democracy. At this moment, if you ask me, I don't see such an immediate threat. But as a politician and a citizen who observed several military or non-military interventions to the political system in the last 60 years, I am 60 years old and I have seen four direct and several indirect coup attempts. So I cannot say confidently that there will not be such an attempt in coming years. If you were the president today, would you allow reopening of the corruption files? And would you allow a due process to take place in Turkey? Our promise as a future party is to establish a new democratic system based on transparency. If there is any case in this sense, we will always be defending transparency, accountability, and rule of law. Regardless of uh, what personalities or time, this is our position. So more means... transparency, more accountability, more rule of law. So that means, uh, that means you would not be opposed to uh, the retrial. In a democratic system, a politician should not decide instead of the judicial institutions. If there are some cases on these matters, of course, as I said, there should be a transparent, transparent process. But as a politician, I cannot, I am not in favor of dictating anything on the judicial system. So it is not business of politicians. It is a matter of judicial process. When you talk about democracy, more democracy, transparency, one thing has been bothering me about statements in support of this progressive agenda, advocating for more individual rights, more freedoms, because there is an important factual inconsistency. Remember what happened back in the January of 2016 when you were still the prime minister. Uh, of course, you know what I'm talking about uh, because as a former academic followed uh, the whole thing very closely, I'm talking about uh, the Academics for Peace. And the petition, uh, the declaration they came up with after which they lost everything they have in terms of academia, their salaries, most of them are still in that situation as we speak today. So if today that a similar thing happened, a large group of Turkey's academics, and when we say large, it's really a large group because it was more than a thousand academics uh, all around Turkey. If you were the prime minister today, if there was a democratic parliamentary system, and if they signed a petition like that, I'm asking this question because I remember perfectly saying, and I checked before recording this episode, 
that you said that declaration cannot be considered within the parameters of uh, freedom of expression. Do you regret saying that, or do you still think the same? If you if you read if you read uh, all the statements which I made, I said this uh, freedom this 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 petition is a matter of freedom of expression, and I said I disagree with them. As an intellectual, I never support any violence or any terrorist activity anywhere. Also, the, the substance of this petition is not consistent with the basic academic criteria. That I said, but I said this is a matter of uh, expression and a freedom of expression, and uh, I can challenge them by intellectual counter arguments. I never defended ar ar arresting them. I never intervened judicial process. And at that time you were working in Hurriyet, I, I am sure, if you look at the reports of Hurriyet, when I resigned in May 2016 in Hurriyet Daily News, one of the basic disagreements between me and President Erdogan was the different position vis-a-vis -vis this petition by academicians, that I never agreed with arresting them or trying to punish them. This has not been my position. There is an erosion uh, in the academic research. There is an erosion in the academic thinking and uh, the good academicians are fleeing Turkey. And mm -hmm. uh, when you talk to them, it's very clear that the petition and everything they went through after that petition has been a turning point in terms of how they perceive the academic freedoms in Turkey. How do you think Turkey can undo this in the future? Your party is called the Future Party. And what do you promise the academia of Turkey how to come back to uh, a free environment? I always defend full intellectual freedom without any limitation. Let me underline this again. So it was, uh, my position was clear uh, uh, regarding that petition in 2016 and today also the same. Uh, when I became prime minister, one of the first action I took was to increase the salaries of academicians young academicians especially, in order to make academic life more attractive and in order to make academicians more economically, more independent, more powerful. Today, the first thing we have to do in Turkish intellectual and political life is to guarantee academicians and intellectuals and journalists full freedom of intellectual activity. Without freedom of thought, you cannot discuss anything, you cannot develop anything, and you cannot provide a new vision for the society. Therefore, this is the first requirement. One day, we hope when we come to power, the first agenda will be freedom of thought. Any limitation against freedom of thought will be removed and the guarantees will be given to academicians, intellectuals and journalists that they can do intellectual activity without any limitation, any fear, any constraint. In the West, Justice and Development Party is broadly defined, especially in the in the last year, as an Islamist political party. You know that. And according to many analysis in the West and also in Turkey, your breakaway party will be a close contender to the Justice and Development Party in that sense, having an Islamist flavor. You could see that this is the wide speculation in the West. When you talk to the same analysts, they think that uh, another breakaway party, Deva Party, Ali Babajan's, your former colleague Ali Babajan's party, has a more broader vision and water base. And they are aiming a broader uh, water base than yours, but you would be a close contender to AK Party, to AKP. Would you agree with this analysis? Are the pious Muslims in Turkey your primary target, as the West likes to describe? Uh, clearly, I disagree. This is not true. And this is not our position. Of course, I cannot compare our party with any other party. Uh, you can ask comments uh, regarding the Wa party to them. I can answer only on, on my uh, behalf, on, on, my, on behalf of my friends and my party. I clearly disagree. I disagree because even when I was prime minister, I never make an attachment between politics and religion in that sense. I'm a Muslim and uh, I respect other religions and I wrote many articles, books on civilizational interaction and defending the human culture 
multiculturalism, universal multiculturalism. In that sense, I never, neither in my academic life nor in my political life, had a narrow, restricted approach to religions in any sense. And I always criticized the concept of political Islam because it is limiting political activity. And this is not my, this was not my position. This is not my position today. We are not continuation of our party. We are a new party. We are not defending the mistakes of our party. We are not just addressing to the masses of our party, but we are not excluding those masses as well, because politics is a dynamic process. You cannot say, for example, 25 years ago, there were followers of Anavatan party. But today we don't have Anavatan party. We never approach politics from a statico or static perspective. Politics is a dynamic process, and all Turkish citizens are part of this dynamic process. We will embrace all Turkish groups and segments and ideological approaches. In our party, there are formal members of CHP, formal members of MHP, formal members of HDP, and all other parties and groups. So we are not limited just to one segment of society. Clearly, you regard this perception of the West as a misperception. Yes. They want to see what they want to see. <laughs> they, they, they see what they want to see, let me say. Especially in the United States. To link the failures of Turkey's Syria policy to you. What would you say to those uh, who think that you founded the framework of the Syria policy that President Erdogan still uh, serves on, works on? <laughs> First of all, Syria cannot be isolated from Middle East. And from Middle East cannot be isolated from the world politics. Syria is not in a vacuum. Neither Turkey is in a vacuum. Nor I am the only person who can decide for everything. Yes, I had a position on Syrian politics, on foreign policy. I had, in fact, as a chief advisor and foreign minister and later as prime minister, I do not reject this. But nobody can say that only one person can decide for everything in Turkish foreign policy. When I was chief advisor, There was Prime Minister, Minister of Foreign Affairs, and there was National Council, National Security Council. When I was minister, same, there were other authorities as well. I am not trying to escape from questions saying this. Turkey has a state mechanism. There are several institutions and offices to decide for the ultimate position of Turkey in international affairs. And regarding Syrian issue, Syria is not an isolated issue. There was an Arab Spring which has shaken, which in my book, Systemic Earthquakes, I call this as a systemic earthquake, structural earthquake of Arab Spring. So there was revolution in Egypt. There was another revolution in Libya, Yemen, Tunisia. There was a wind of democratic uprisings in the Middle East. Those who are criticizing us on Syria, they were, the same people were criticizing when we had good relations with Syria in 2005-6, when Assad was isolated. And they were criticizing us when we lifted the visa requirement between Turkey and Syria in 2009 and 2010. So our relation with Syria was going in a very positive direction, even in economic integration, more peaceful relations, joint cabinet meeting. And I was the mediator between Syria and Israel in 2008, when I was chief advisor. The indirect talks between Syria and Israel, you know very well, you were working at that time as a journalist. Uh, in Turkey. And that indirect talks were conducted by a team led by me. And both Syrian and Israeli authorities were respecting me personally. And I had several tens of meetings with Bashar Assad. So we had excellent relations until Arab Spring, when Syrian leaders and regime was not oppressing their own people. After Arab Spring, especially after the revolution in Egypt, that was a wind. All Uh, youngsters of Arab people, youth, they demanded the same democratic rights like 1990s in Eastern Europe. That was their right. They demanded more freedom, more democracy. And as Turkey, and personally as someone who always defended democracy everywhere in the world, we supported this transformation in Egypt, in Libya, in Tunisia, in Yemen, in Syria for several months. We tried to convince Bashar Assad not to use violence 
and military means against the demands of people. From 2010, uh, 11 January until August, I went to Syria several times just to try to convince them to make some even limited reforms to overcome this type of unrest. We did everything. But when Bashar Assad decided to use more violence, barrel bombs, chemical weapons against their own people, we had to act against him. We had to take certain measures against him. And Turkish, in that sense, policy against Syrian regime was not against Bashar Assad, was not against a neighboring government, but was against a regime which violated basic human rights and basic laws, international conventions. That was our position. So we tried to defend national interests of Turkey and we tried to defend humanitarian rights of Syrian people. And that was nothing wrong in this. Turkey was never an actor, negative actor, in my time on Syrian soil. We never supported terrorism or any activity in that sense. That unrest in Syria did emerge because of Arab Supreme, not because of Turkish actions. When you think back, would you say that arming the Sunni rebels, the jihadi fractions on Turkish soil was also the right policy? We never did so. That was another misjudgment. Pre-Syrian army did emerge in Syria. Not, they did not emerge in Turkey. When was the first pre-Syrian army activity? When did it start in 2011 fall? around November, December. Before that, there was a peaceful demonstration. There were peaceful demonstrations in Syria. But that was our advice to Bashar Assad at that time. President Gül, Prime Minister Erdogan then, and myself. Try to convince him not to use military against the people. Why? Because the Syrian regime was controlled by a minority of 12% by a sect. And all high-ranked military and intelligence officers, generals, were from this minority group. And Syrian people, because of the memories from 1980s, from half of the time, they always saw military, high-ranked military, as a sectarian military. And when this Syrian army, which was supposed to be used against foreign enemies, was used against Syrian people in Aleppo, in Hama, in Humus, where the majority of the people were not from the same sect, especially middle-rank officers, escaped from the army, and they established Free Syrian Army, not Turkey, not any neighboring country. So army was divided at early stage. Later, the terrorist groups, so especially foreign fighters, didn't come from Turkey, neither Daesh. They came from Iraq. Daesh came to Syria from Iraq, not from Turkey. In 2013, May, June, many prisoners of war from Bakuba prison in Iraq under the control of American army, they escaped, thousands of them. And they formed Daesh in Iraq first and controlled Mosul. Then they came from Mosul to Syria. Turkey never supported any terrorist activity in Syria. But when Free Syrian Army, who controlled the border, Turkish-Syrian border in 2012 were fully under the control of this pre-Syrian army, except one gate. And as a country, you have you had to deal with them for the security of your own borders. Otherwise, Turkey didn't initiate to form any militia in Syria. This is basically what has happened. Who should be blamed? First, Syrian regime should be blamed because of using illegal, internationally criminal tools against their own people, including chemical weapons. Then international community for several years, one million Syrians died. Millions of them escaped as refugees. And millions of them had to leave their homes inside Syria. Turkey is not responsible for that. Turkey had to act as a country having 911 kilometer border, had to protect, we had to protect our border about this border control, I was Minister of Foreign Affairs. I, am, I was not in charge of border control. So those who are even in Turkey, there, are, there is tendency even from the government party today blaming on me personally or, or, or us in general. But this is not uh, true. I tried to prevent unrest in Syria at the beginning, then tried to defend Syrian people. 
and try to use diplomatic means, peaceful diplomatic means to resolve Syrian issue, nothing else. And today, Turkish armed forces are deeply entrenched in Syria, as you know. They sit on quite big portions of land after three land operations into the Syrian soil. Do you favor Turkey being involved in Syria, militarily involved in Syria? Do you favor an invasion, as many in the West would put it, by Turkey into the Syrian soil? I think it's not a matter of choice. Something in diplomacy or military becomes a matter of necessity. As a former minister of foreign affairs or prime minister, I wouldn't want to send military outside the country. No responsible leader would act in favor of war or military action, military intervention in other countries. But if there are forces of insecurity, like Daesh, like PKK, and if they are disturbing you, or they are risking your security, you have to act. Turkish military intervention in Syria, also in Iraq, was not because of Turkish ambitions to invade other countries. Even today, although I disagree with the government on many issues, including their policy vis-a-vis Syria, I disagree on many matters. But at the end of the day, Turkish governments, regardless of ideological or political orientation, always defend the territorial integrity of Syria and Iraq. But if Syrian regime oppressing their people and Syrian regime is not able to control the border and terrorist comes to the border, American soldiers came to Syria for what? For what reason? Claiming that Daesh is a threat to them and U.S. is thousands of miles away from Syria. Turkey is next door. If there is a threat against U.S. or against Russia in Syria, I am sure everybody would agree that the same threat is valid for Turkey. And how can you eliminate this threat? Not only by diplomatic means, sometimes you have to act militarily. And there are thousands of militias coming from Lebanon and Iran. What they are doing in Syria, from Iraq, from Iran, from Lebanon. There are thousands of paramilitary groups coming from Russia. And soldiers, official soldiers from Russia and US, what are they doing in Syria? It is not fair to blame Turkey, which is the only country among these countries, the only neighboring country to Syria, which was being affected by this absence of security in Syria directly. Turkey had to make some actions. But these actions should be well calculated, well planned, and should be part of a strategy. At the end of the day, military means is instrument or is meaningful only if there is a full-scale strategy. I don't see that strategy. Therefore, I criticize the existing Turkish foreign policy. I don't see that clear strategy. But it doesn't mean that I disagree with regarding the need of certain military actions on our borders if there are terrorist activities like PKK or Daesh around us. So what you're saying is that as long as there are other foreign actors, other countries being involved in Syria, Turkey needs to be there for its own national security. Is that right? Yeah, of course. But what I am saying is that if they have the right to come there, Turkey has more legitimized uh, claims to be there. Right. Because Turkey is next door. I would like to go back to another important episode in Turkish foreign policy, which defined the Turkish foreign policy in the last decade. We can go back to the fall of 2015, when the Russian jet, the fighter jet, was downed by Turkish Air Force. There is still a little bit of vagueness there. What happened? How it happened? Who gave the orders? And did Turkey really have to pay an expensive price for that incident? So... How would you define, as that day's prime minister, what happened with Russia if Russia used that incident as a leverage against Turkey to drive a cleavage between Turkey and the West? Uh, I don't think that there are certain values regarding that event. I clearly explained what has happened, both in the report to the Parliamentary Commission regarding 15 July coup d'etat attempt. I wrote it in details. On several TV programs, I also gave the full picture. First of all, it was an engagement, rule of engagement. There was a rule of engagement uh, declared in 2012, July, or June or July. 
when Syrian forces attacked a Turkish jet. So it was clear to Syrians and to Russians that if there is a violation against Turkish territories by air, that would be reacted by Turkish air force. So this was known by Syrians, by Russians. And that rule of engagement was declared when I was Minister of Foreign Affairs and when Prime Minister Erdogan was Prime Minister at the time, 2012. When I became Prime Minister, we have renewed this, the same rule of engagement. And when President Putin came to Turkey in November 2015 for G20 meetings, President Erdogan told him clearly that Russian Air Force should be very careful in doing their operations in Syria not to violate Turkish borders because it was impossible to identify which plane belonged to whom. There were operating Russian planes and Syrian planes uh, close to Turkish border. So there was a clear violation in November 2015, clear violation of Turkish airspace, and we warned Russians several times. That day, in fact, it was a critical day, That was the first day of my government. My government was declared the same day. So as a new prime minister who won the election by a vast majority, it wasn't my choice to have a crisis with Russia, with a neighboring country, which I have always defended good relations. And when I was minister of foreign affairs, I signed the visa liberalization agreement with Russia. So I always defended good relations with Russia, like good relations with EU, good relations with U.S., China, and all the global powers. So it was not my choice in that sense, and neither by the choice of Turkey in general. There was a clear violation by Russian plane, violation of Turkish airspace, and despite of warnings, that morning around 9.30, Turkish planes had to react. Without knowing that it was a Russian plane, a plane was approaching Turkish border, Turkish planes warned them, Turkish jets, that plane violated several times Turkish airspace. That morning, when our military chief of staff informed me, I openly clearly told him that if it is, if it was a Russian plane, that should be shared first with Russian authorities, without any making any public statement, because I know how to deal with diplomatic crisis, and that should have been discussed and shared first with Russian authorities, especially with President Putin. But unfortunately, despite of my order. Five minutes after his instruction, there was a statement by presidential office that a Russian plane was shut down by Turkish Air Force. For me, that was, uh, it was a mistake, but that mistake did prevent any diplomatic effort behind the scene. I, yes, I said that it was my order. Why? Because there were certain claims against the pilot and against Air Force, Turkish Air Force that they were member of FETÖ. I asked chief of staff to make an investigation and let me know. As prime minister, it is my responsibility. If there was a case like this FETÖ, we should have acted. If not, Turkish military was given rule of engagement. So nobody can take them accountable. Rule of engagement is the order. Otherwise, no, those who know military practice, political practice, No prime minister or president or minister or chief of staff can instruct a pilot in that incident of five seconds. I meant rule of engagement, which was given by prime minister in Turkish system to the military that they can act in certain conditions if there is a violation of Turkish airspace or Turkish borders. This was the meaning of the order. Some people think that Turkey is still paying the price of that incident and Turkey felt itself obliged to buy the Russian S-400 missile system because of that. Would you agree? Yes. After this incident, there was an era of crisis between Turkey and Russia. This could have been managed in a much better way. Because of Russian hegemony in Syria, military control in Syria, Turkey had to make certain concessions vis-à-vis Russia. I don't think they're just because of that incident. But if that crisis was properly managed, there wouldn't be any crisis between Turkey and Russia. Because in this type of cases, both sides know that there could be certain unwanted events if there was no proper coordination between military agencies. It was not my choice or 
Turkish choice to create any crisis between Turkey and Russia. And same day, I declared that if we knew that it was Russian plane, of course, if there was a proper coordination between Turkish and Russian military authorities, or if Russians gave us the information vis-a-vis this operation, there couldn't be such an, such an incident. So it was a mismanagement of coordination, not an action by will, by Turkish side, to deteriorate our relations with Russia. But later, after my resignation, of course, I cannot judge what has happened. I don't know what uh, the, the, the background of developments, but unfortunately, in the last three, four years, Turkish-Russian relation is, in that one sense, very positively developed, fortunately. But on the other hand, Turkey was not able to make a balance between big players of international system, especially Russia, EU, China, US, there has been a fluctuating relations, even with Russia, sometimes very positive, sometimes very suspicious, like when Turkish soldiers were killed in Idlib in February, there was a clear Russian intervention and that has not been clarified. That has not been clarified. So therefore, I disagree with the existing Turkish foreign policy, which is more uh, personal, more conjectural, and uh, lacking a strategic integrity uh, in itself. S-400 missile defense system, we paid billions of dollars for that, but they were not activated in April as it was promised. This is, for me, is inconsistencies, which because of S-400, we had, Turkey had some problems with in, in NATO and paid the money and now they were not activated. So this is, this is not the appropriate way of developing relations with neighboring big power, Russia, or with our allies in NATO. There should be a much better rational and more institutional foreign policy framework in making diplomacy. It seems that this S-400s issue is going to turn, has the potential to turn into even a bigger crisis with the United States if the system is will be activated. So judging by the statements coming from the Turkish government, the reason uh, for them not to activate the S-400s was the coronavirus outbreak. At least this is the official position. But uh, anyone who follows uh, the foreign policy issues closely uh, understands that this is actually a modus vivendi sort of situation that uh, Russia also agrees with the fact that Turkey uh, defers the question of activation for a while in order to fix its relationship with the United States. So if you were the prime minister today, of course, there's no prime minister today, but if you were the foreign minister, if you were in a position to advise President Erdogan what to do next with these S-400s, what would you say? Would you say we should activate them once and for all and then deal with what happens with the United States or we should put off activation? I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow the developments to come to this position. At this moment, fortunately, there is not a situation where you can advise in a systematic manner. I wouldn't allow the events to develop in this way, to come to this position from the very beginning. I always defend an integrated strategic framework where Turkey developed best relations with neighboring country Russia and best relations with EU as Turkish political orientation and best relations with US as an ally in NATO and on many other issues. These are, if you can use your relation, your Turkish relations with these three big players and other rising players like China, like India, and other countries like Brazil, which we had very good relations. But basically these three, if you see, you bring them in a complementary framework, complementary framework, one relation, your good relation with Russia will facilitate your good relation with EU and your good relation with US and vice versa. Your good relation with EU can facilitate Russia. Like in 2010, we have signed visa liberalization agreement with Russia, we have good relations with EU on many issues and also with US, at least despite of the problem with Iranian nuclear issue, we had certain strategic coordination. But if you try to use one of these big players against the other one, it is counterproductive. Turkey shouldn't do this. You should not say, if I am my relation with President Trump is bad, 
my relation with Putin should be better, should be better, and it could be used against these. And then after five, six months, you try to use your relation with Trump against your relation with Putin. This is a big mistake. Turkey is a big country. Turkish leaders should not be playing a game, should not be giving an image as if they are trying to use one card against the other. The opposite. Turkish leaders should be given an image of trust, an image of sustainable relations. I couldn't imagine as a minister of foreign affairs or as a chief advisor or as a prime minister, I couldn't imagine that an American president would write a letter to Turkish president saying, don't be fooled. This is unacceptable. Neither I could imagine that a Turkish president would be waiting minutes, several minutes in front of the door of President Putin. So respect can come only if you follow an integrated foreign policy. Therefore, I wouldn't allow events to come to this position. At this moment, it is really a critical situation. And Turkey had to make strategic reorientation of Turkish strategy is needed. Not just S-400, a full-scale reorientation of Turkish foreign policy based on Turkish interest, based on rational diplomacy, based on dignity of Turkish nation, but at the same time, rational, institutionalized relations with all powers of international system. So I understand from your words that if the current foreign policy is not restructured, it's inevitable that Ankara will either going to have a crisis with Washington or Moscow under yeah, these circumstances. Yeah, of, course. of course, there is a need of full-scale reorientation of Turkish strategy in foreign policy. Coming to a close, I know your time is limited and uh, thanks for being so generous with your time with us. But uh, before we close, I have a few uh, domestic policy questions for you. The first one is about the political parties law in Turkey. We see an intention by the governing bloc between Justice and Development Party and Devlet Bahçeli's MHP that they might be intending uh, to change the political parties law so that smaller parties like yours will not be able to go into alliances, will not be able to get into the parliament uh, in the next election. So what is your sense of their strategy? What do you think they are planning to do? And do you think this strategy might actually work for getting rid of you as uh, potential threats in, in, in the next elections? First of all, let me correct your concept, smaller parties. <laughs> We are not a small party. We are a new party. And I am the winner of the last parliamentary election in Turkey. And I got 49.5%, which was the highest vote in Turkish democracy, democratic history. So our party is a new party, but not a small party. And you will see, and everybody will see that in next election, the basic political power in Turkey will be future party. There is no doubt about it. Therefore, because of this, in fact, MHP and AK Parti, Bahçeli and Erdogan, they are trying to prevent us. Therefore, they are trying to change not only political party law, but election law as well. And they want to break new election thresholds. If we were a small party, as you described, Can Suhanam, they wouldn't be such in panic. They are in panic and they want to change the rule of the game because they know that we are a rising political power in Turkey. And we will change the, I am always saying, we, we will be ending the Cold War in Turkish domestic politics between two fronts. A new power is coming, which is future party. Therefore, they are in panic. No self-confident government in any other country would change election law or political party law. In Turkish history, recent history, you can see political leaders, governments, try to change election laws when they are declining. That has happened during the time of Özal, Demir, and many other cases. They want to control. Therefore, now I can tell you that neither Bahçeli nor Erdogan are self-confident. They know very well that the political scene in Turkey is changing. Why did they start such an initiative now, not last year, because there was no future party last year. 
Instead, there is a force, future party, as an alternative. Because they know very well, those who are not happy with this government, they will come to future party. Before, those who were not happy with AK party were going to MHP. So the total vote of the front, Jumhur Ittifakı, was able to be kept as it is. But now, there is an alternative future party. But regardless of their efforts, we will change the political future of Turkey. Are you expecting a SNAP election uh, soon? Or are you expecting an election before the scheduled date of uh, 2023? If you ask me before, I would say there is no need for such an election because there are three more years. But having an experience in 2015, first November election, winning a vast majority in the parliament, getting support of almost 50% of the people, nobody was expecting an early election, neither an election. Therefore, I declared a four-year plan of reform in Turkey. And in three months' time, early 2016, we have fulfilled all the promises, increasing 30% of minimum wage, for example. And we started to make reforms. But suddenly there was a coup attempt in my party against me. And then 2016, 15 July attempt, 2017, constitutional referendum, 2018, general election, 2019, municipal election. So every year there was an election. So having that experience, I cannot say there will be no election until 2023. There could be an election. There is no, at this moment, there is no reason for any election because of the balance of power in the parliament. Constitutionally, only president can decide for an early election. And president, there is no assurance that he would be winning the next election. So there is no logic of this. Therefore, in one of my last statements, I said, constitutionally, the early election is in the hand of president. But psychologically, the early election is in the hand of Bahçeli. So if there is any dispute between Erdogan and Bahçeli, election could be inescapable. And any surprise may happen because the economic situation is terrible, because uh, the rise of unhappy voters, let me say, is rising and nobody can predict the future. So all these indicators show that it is very difficult for this government and president to continue until 2023 in a sustainable way. There, there could be a need for an election. But could be in this year or next year, it is difficult to predict. As I said, my responsibility, duty, is to prepare my party. And I instructed to our party leaders and chairpersons throughout the country that they have to be ready for any election, anytime. Our first target is to complete congresses in districts, then in provinces, and to make big congress in, let me say, September or October latest which will give us chance to participate elections next year, anytime next year. This is our objective and we will do our job. We will be ready for any election. My last question for you today is about the political alliances. I can see that you are very confident with your party. You are confident future party will be one of the key players in any uh, possible election in the next the year. The key player, the key player. Right, the key player uh, in your words. But judging by the political uh, equation today, political alliances in Turkey without a constitutional change, without a major change in the law, uh, is uh, difficult. You could not form an alliance between your former colleague Ali Babacan and your party. You had your differences and you could not work out your differences in the past. Now there is talk that the two parties that you have might actually come together under the umbrella of bigger alliances, be it with the leadership of CHP or even another alliance headed by E-Party, Good Party of Meral Akşener. Do you think that you would work out your differences and work together with Ali Babacan's Deva Party in a different alliance? You could not do it among yourselves in the last year, but if there is a bigger, a grand alliance before the next election, Do you think that would be possible? This is my last question to you. First of all, of course, Ali Bey and oh, many of our friends in the Deva Party, they are our friends. But 
Today we are a party, they have established a party. And we don't see any difference between parties. I mean, E-Party, CHP, and all other parties, legitimate parties, for us, are equal. Will there be a possibility of alliance? I can say first, issue-based alliance is possible for every party. For example, on Libyan issue, I clearly declared support for the government. We thought that it was right policy in Libya, supporting the legitimate national accord government, while other opposition parties disagree with that. So for us, issue-based alliance or cooperation is a necessity of democracy. With all parties, we can do it. Another way of alliance is process alliance, which I called. Regarding one, a process, we can have common position with other parties. But this is not a polarized alliance. A process alliance, uh, what I mean, is, for example, if there is a new constitutional process to, bring, to, to have parliamentary system back, Definitely, we can have an alliance with those who have similar position with us. Or on other issues, reforms, economic policies, we can have an alliance with other parties. And the parties are not static phenomena. Regarding the alliance in Turkey today, because of the system, alliances are being seen as static, as if these alliances will go forever. Political parties are changing their positions. Now we are in a dynamic political environment, and in that dynamic political environment, we can have alliances in different forms. When elections approaches, there will be new calculations, new approaches. Then you will decide election alliance, whatever it is, I mean, as a process alliance, you can decide in that political reality. Who could imagine that Erdogan and Bahçeli accusing each other, threatening each other, insulting each other, could come together in last two years. So as future party, we don't approach to other parties in a static way. We are approaching on two things. One is ideals, political values. We can make alliance with any party on the concept of transparency. Whoever defends transparency and brings a law, we will support. We can have alliance on parliamentary system or balance of power in the system, separation of powers, rule of law, freedom of thought. We can have an alliance with any political party. So one of these parties doesn't have a special position in our approach. Although we have, in the past, we worked together with the colleagues from Deva Party, Today they have their party, we have our party. We, we want to have good relations with all the parties defending democracy, defending political values such as transparency, political ethics, and accountability, rule of law. These are the basis of alliance, not just because of our good relations in the past or because of our common interest. No. Now there is a new political reality in Turkey, and everybody must act on this political reality. And that political reality is not something static. It is a dynamic political reality. And we will feel the pulse of the people and decide accordingly in all issues, including having alliances, issue-based or process-based or permanent alliance. On that note, uh, on those positive messages from you about the future of uh, Turkish politics, I would like to thank you very much for your time, for uh, being with me here today on Zeitgeist Turkey. Uh, it has been delightful. It has been very enlightening for me, and I am sure it has been like that for our audience. And hopefully in the next months, we will host you again with different topics. Thank you of so course. much. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for this uh, interview. One last message is we have to be optimistic. We should develop a new vision for our country. And that vision is for the future of our country. And future party is for the future of Turkey. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Davutoglu, former Turkish prime minister and the leader of the future party. Until next time, take care, stay safe and stay healthy. Goodbye. Thank you.